Yeah, I guess. I've only done 167. Uh, Joe, are we going with boys are back in town when we come out? Thank you. I meant to ask you that. Just... <clears throat> <clears throat> From Television City in Hollywood. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give them a good show. Now stay tuned for professional wrestling live from the Springfield Crapolarium. Tonight, a Texas death match. Dr. Hillbilly versus the Iron Yuppie. One man will actually be unmasked and killed in the ring. I hope they kill that Iron Yuppie. Thinks he's so big. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, greetings from Allentown is not taped in front of a live studio audience. everyone and welcome to episode 193 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host Peter Winston. And today, well, I've covered the UWF from this year before and it's always good to check in with Grandpa Bill Watts every 12-15 episodes just to make sure he's not doing anything too crazy. And in fact, he makes himself well known towards the end of this program, the UWF July 19th, 1986. But an interesting reason for directing me towards this and this video caught my attention it is on youtube a while back i don't think this is on the award-winning wwe network it's that there are certain production elements that were left in in that our host for the program jim ross and michael hayes along with whoever is doing color at, at various points because hayes leaves at a certain point and we hear from other people they're, they're talking to the production truck or to the director or whatever. And it's kind of fascinating to see, you know, Jim Ross completely raw and uncensored. At this point in time, I have seen some of those satellite dealies that I think Richard Land has posted to Twitter a long time ago where similarly they're talking to the truck and all that sort of stuff. And I remember the Tito Santana, El Matador versus Papa Shango match from WrestleMania 9 also features Jim Ross talking to the producers where he doesn't really know all the moves. So this one's rather interesting. I love Mid-South or Universal Wrestling Federation. And this is also a historic show for Greetings Valentine because this is, I think, notebook number six or seven that I've gone through now, or that, that I'm now starting, I should say. What's funny is when I looked at the last one as I was putting it away, it was episode, I think it was 157. It was the tail end of my notes, and that show was also the Universal Wrestling Federation from April of 1987. So, I don't know. That's really more of a coincidence than anything else. But before I get into all that, why don't I get in my plugs? You can email the show, greetingsamountown at gmail.com, facebook.com, blah, 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 blah. On Twitter, at GFAllentownPod, that is at GFAllentownPod, and you probably saw that I tweeted out the whole notebook thing a couple of years, a couple, couple of years. Jeez, God, I've lost all sense of time with, with everything that's going on. But I did 
tweeted my my green book. This one this one is more of a dark blue. For some reason, I, I have to buy these at Target. For whatever reason, this is one product where Amazon does not sell it for as good of a price as I could get in the store. It it really kind of leaves me scratching my head. Also, want to point out that listeners to this program you should check out GFA Live that was released this past Saturday. As my good pal, the voice of Greece, Valentine, Keithy Langston, and I go continue our journey through the best of the World Wrestling Federation from Coliseum Video. And if you're wondering why I keep saying Wrestling Federation, it's because that's the way Vince McMahon says it whenever he introduces it on those tapes. It just really amuses me. This past weekend, we looked at volume number six, mostly from the year 1985. Starts out pretty hot with... Terry Funk versus Lanny Poffo and the Macho Man, Randy Savage against Hulk Hogan. Then kind of gradually slides downhill. But it was certainly entertaining. And we did another scene. From, I haven't named the segment. We're just watching scenes from Karate Kid Part 2 and just breaking them down. This one is the scene from the beginning of the movie where Kreese and Miyagi have their confrontation in the parking lot. And Kreese, as I point out, not unlike Goldberg on Nitro in 1999 or 2000, I forget what year it was, it all blends together to me now, puts his hand through, well, I guess, two different car windows. So it was, I guess, a double Goldberg. So I do encourage you to check that out. I have to admit that <laughs> a very rather inauspicious start to my work week as I log on to the computer 8.59 a.m., on Monday morning, and the first thing I see is, oh crap, I did not send my, what, what am I working on, current status of everything that I've been working on to my boss. I, I had prepped it all, I just never sent it on Friday. And as I'm getting ready to send that out, I look and I see that my boss had actually given notice and will be leaving the company on December 4th, and it was kind of shocking because she'd been around for quite a while, was friendly with the guy who founded the company dating back to before he even founded the company. There's so much about my industry that I really don't know. So then I go on, uh, my biggest project has a weekly, well, actually twice weekly call, and Monday and Thursday generally. So I hop on to that at 9.01 a.m. And about five minutes into that, it's just casually dropped by the project manager, that he will be leaving the company at Thanksgiving in approximately two weeks. So, like, oh, okay. So, is everybody just bailing out here? Is this some sort of Titanic thing? Do I need, like, a Billy Zane to come by <laughs> reserve a lifeboat for me? I'm not entirely sure, but I think I'm going to hang in there. The proverbial middle reliever of the implementations team, where I take on troubled projects and I pitch out of a jam in the fourth or fifth inning. I mean, I guess that's a niche that somebody has to fill, but eh, I don't want to talk about that too much because clearly things are a little troubled right now and a little unsettled with everything that is going on at my work. All I can do, and I encourage anybody, you know, in your job, if you're just not, if you're just not feeling it, just just do the best you can and worry about what is in front of you because you shouldn't be looking behind you. Maybe not the greatest, the more you know I've ever come up with, but I truly believe that. It's just that sometimes I have to remind myself of it as well. It's been months since I've set foot in the office, and I remember back in March, you're talking about getting, like, an air hockey table or a ping pong table or whatever. I mean, we don't have enough people in that office to really make it worthwhile. 
But a ping pong table would have been nice because this past weekend, I spent most of the time while cleaning my mother's house dismantling this gigantic ping pong table that, frankly, I'm going to have to ask why the hell this even exists. Like, apparently my father bought a ping pong table at some point before I was born. So here, here it is from like the 70s. And I'm trying to dismantle it, like, screw by screw, because you know how hard it is to throw a ping pong table away? <laughs> like, I, I don't even know how quite to break down, like, the, the, the playing surface. But eventually, I'll figure it out. But outside of that, I was able to find a shocking number of various, again, surprise, surprise, just in the basement alone. Once again, for the 10th straight week, it's crazy crap I found in my mother's house. Since I've cleaned out a lot of crap already, I always think that the pickings are going to be slim at a certain point, but I haven't even really gotten to, like, the various bookshelves and have, like, gone through and, like, okay, yeah, there are books here, but are there, like, pamphlets? Am I going to find a banquet program from 1985 like I did last week? Well, here, I found something that I've referenced on the podcast previously, and it was, I don't know if i call it a pamphlet, it was more of a, more of a booklet explaining the terminology and everything that goes behind the Imaginary Wrestling Association, or I think that's what it was, the IWA. You know, one of those things that when you buy the wrestling magazines in the late 80s or early 90s, it was basically a mail-in e-fed. There's no E to it. It was just the you mail in a sequence of moves or whatever, and then you know, a couple of weeks later you'll get a thing in the mail back. And did your guy win or lose? Did he win the Pacific title or whatever? There's all sorts of regional championships. And sadly, I didn't take the pamphlet with me, but it, it was bright colored green, so you could tell it was the early '90s. It was almost like in a Ninja Turtle sort of thing, and it. Re- it really reminds me, like, well, it was harmless fun that I was having. I, I, it would cost, like, 7 or $8 or something like that, as I recall. And I think when I brought this up before, I think one person reached out and was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I took part in that as well. So I'm glad that I'm not crazy and that this whole thing was a figment of my, well, I guess, imagination is what it would be. Coming in at number two this week. There's a freezer down in the basement that's been dormant now for about 18 years, and apparently during this whole pandemic. Freezers, not like refrigerators with a freezer component, just like entire freezers have become rather valuable. In fact, I kind of wonder if maybe if I could get that thing going again, if perhaps it could be sold. But I don't even want to think about having to carry it out the same way I carried four TVs, an air conditioner, and a computer monitor out. But on top of that freezer, this probably does not sound that shocky, but I found a plastic bag from a supermarket chain, and these are the kind of hyper-local references you get on GFA Live, from a, a supermarket chain called Purity, where I worked back in the day before it became Stop and Shop. Which was in 1996 that that occurred. That, like, and somehow, not one, but two plastic bags for Purity, which was formerly Purity Supreme. But they, they had a pretty cool logo with a heart that was kind of shaped like an apple. I, I, I kind of dig that one. But yeah, I, I'm not, I didn't throw away the plastic bag. It's perfectly usable. 
I mean, I could, I could bag my groceries in that now for this 24-year-old plastic. God knows plastic doesn't disintegrate. This is why everybody's all up in arms. And finally, coming in at number one, and this is actually wrestling-related, and I think I've spoken about this before, my BWO Blue World Order shirt. And before you get excited, no, I did not actually find the BWO shirt. Instead, I go through a box, once again, with a million notepads in it, because apparently all my mother and father ever did in life was whenever they would go to, like, a meeting or conference, they just lift every freaking notepad in the place and bring it home and just store it somewhere. Why, I don't know. But in one of these boxes, I found two pictures of me wearing the BWO shirt. But the thing that shocked me most about it is not that I was wearing it. I mean, I wore it all the time back in the day. But how long my freaking hair was. I mean, I got a haircut today as I record this. And it's pretty freaking short. And looking at this, I look like a Seattle grunge reject from like 1992. Except this was in 2004 because I know that that was when I had the longest hair that I ever had. And also because I'm holding my dearly departed cat, Brady, and I could tell just based on how small she is that that would have been when it was. But, yeah, I'd really like for that BWO shirt to turn up any time now. I hope I didn't donate it to charity, but if I did, I hope that some guy somewhere is wearing it proudly. And that's crazy crap that I found in my mother's house. Well, the BWO being part of ECW, they ran hot for a particular period of time, as did Mid-South, the Universal Wrestling Federation. And there's a lot of neat stuff on this show beyond all the production elements. Yeah, we get Young Sting, of course, as he always seems to turn up in these UWF shows that I cover. I don't think I've ever had a Sheep Herders match outside of the Portland series that I did a couple of months ago with Luke Williams losing the hair match to Roddy Piper and then them taking on Piper and Martel, Rick Martell in a two-out-of-three falls match. And the UWF was pretty hot in 1986. I I don't know if I want to compare that in 84. I should probably go back and do a 1984 show. I mean, I covered one. It was like the 11th episode that I did, and the Midnight Express was just, I think, actually they debuted in a different episode, but... 84 Mid-South, certainly something that's worth checking out on YouTube. I should make sure that that channel that had all of those is still there. I, I kind of, I, I don't want to lose track of these things as I go along. Also, you get interesting matchups like something straight out of 1993 WWF, if you had a, an all-babyface match, or Rick Steiner taking on Coco Ware. I mean, that that sounds good to me. I mean... That's a match that if you took to some simpleton wrestling fan in 1999, which, you know, if you saw WCW and the World Wrestling Federation at the time, you know, kind of all were made simpletons by some of the programming back then, you'd be like, wait a minute, Coco Ware is the favorite in that match? Yes, because it was a completely different time and Rick Steiner was just coming up in the business. Now, the Freebirds... They obviously had some ebbs and flows as you continue through the 1980s, very early in the decade. They're in Mid-South then with JYD. You got them down in Georgia with DiBiase. You know, sometimes it doesn't work out like the WWF stuff, but World Class with the Von Erics, obviously that, that speaks for itself. And here, now they're back in 
Mid-South, now the UWF, as I said, Michael Hayes is on commentary, which is something that I think he was particularly well-suited for. He was a very good partner, I think, for Jim Ross. And they're, obviously, they got a feud going with Bill Watts, who clearly is, (laughs) clearly got a taste for the ring again in 1986 between the Eddie Gilbert feud, which I covered back in episode 21. Once Bill Watts was done fighting the commie bastards, he had to move along to the Confederate flag-waving rocket rollers, which, now that I think about it, probably has a little bit more in common with them than he might care to admit. It's good It's good to check on Watts land every so often. Like I said, every 12 to 15 episodes, I, I'd like to step in, make sure that everything's okay, kind of do a wellness check on Grandpa Bill. It's usually a very easy watch. I've always said that... Mid-South UWF is a the kind of wrestling where you can jump in and watch an episode really at any point, even if you have no idea what's going on. Like, I think that this is something that you could show to, all right, demonstrate to me what wrestling was like in the 1980s. You could throw on an episode of Mid-South from anywhere from, let's say, uh, arbitrarily speaking, June of 1982. Well, okay, that's not arbitrarily. That's when Ted DiBiase turned on the Junkyard Dog, which I covered back episode 139. Check that out in the archives. And you could go all the way up, really, to the death of the promotion. I would not recommend going too far past the sale to the Crockett people because as you get later into 1987, some of the, I considered doing a late era 87 Crockett run. But then I realized that it's just NWA Pro with a different, you know, name slapped on the top of the show. And I'd rather cover something that, like I said, is from Bill Watts land. So without any further ado, I mean, it's, I also think we're going to get something fun here with the various production thing. Like I want to see how, I want to see how many times Jim Ross swears or Michael Hayes or what have you. I, I want to hear some cursing. I want to hear some foul potty mouths okay so why don't i just get right to it it's uwf wrestling for july 19th 1986 the way the uwf did their tv was two weeks at a time and at this particular point they're taping it in tulsa oklahoma And thinking about it, there are pros and cons to how they used to do it at the Irish McNeil Boys Club in Shreveport, Louisiana, and this particular location. This one feels bigger and just has more of a big event feel, but there was a certain coziness to the earlier venue. Now, I have to say, once again, this show is pretty crazy in how it's presented because (laughs) we're going to be missing some stuff, but I think it's all worth it for some of these irregular things that we're going to get like the countdown to them coming on the air and here we are jr and michael hayes hello everybody and welcome to the universal wrestling federation i'm jim ross i'll be your host for the next 60 minutes Freebird Michael P.S. Hayes will provide the color commentary, ladies and gentlemen. We've just seen some exciting footage from last week and what I term as the most physically intense 
battle between two of the biggest men in pro wrestling, Hacksaw Duggan and the one-man gang. Undoubtedly, and it's, it's not over yet for sure. But you know what? Last week, we were ripped off that maniac. You know, they didn't make him quit wrestling. Uh, he didn't retire. They made him quit wrestling. That's what happened because he's a maniac. Bill Watts comes out there with a ball bat. Then Buddy beats Terry Taylor. Then they change it, give the title back to Terry Taylor. I'll tell you what, you're pushing us a little bit too far. But I'm going to let it go for right now because we've got a lot of things coming up. We're premiering our follow-up hit single from Bad Street USA to our new single, The Boys Are Back in Town. We were lucky enough and nice enough to let the cameras come to the studio and let you people see how it was recorded with Ricky Medlock, Ricky Phillips, Jimmy Papa. On top of that, we've got a feature on uh, Dark Journey and Missy. I had, and, I had the case to be with them last week, both those ladies, obviously. And, uh, oh, I guess very, you think you're lucky, don't you? Well, it was, it was a very good duty, I will say. And yeah, did you tell her to quit calling me, Dark Journey? Funny to hear that, since Michael Hayes got slapped by Dark Journey on the May 31st episode, which I covered back in episode 21. It's always something about Dark Journey, for, for whatever reason. A JR being around women for an extended period of time. Well, maybe it was okay then. But now on Twitter where he kind of takes pictures of his maid while she's cleaning when doesn't know. I, I don't, I don't want to walk down that road. So we're going to start out with very, very young Sting taking on Ken Massey, a long time enhancement talent. And you, you could really peg him as a UWF guy because he was there for pretty much all of 86 and into 1987. Now Sting, Still with Eddie Gilbert. Every time I see them in 86 UWF, all I can think about is Eddie Gilbert should have been the Black Scorpion. It was really the only thing that made sense. His former partner, Blade Runner Rock, is no longer there. Of course, he would go on to great fame as the Dingo Warrior in world-class championship wrestling. Oh, yeah, and the Ultimate Warrior at some point down the road. He'd been gone about a month. I guess there was some sort of pay dispute. I, I can imagine how Jim Helwig and Bill Watts would not get along. Although I do think that in <laughs> elections, they would have voted for pretty much the same guys. the trademark blonde hair at this point but none of it is spiky in fact it looks kind of bushy almost like he's an off-spec version of his later self is really the only way i can describe it like when your town has a halloween parade and they bring in the disney characters but it's an off-spec mickey mouse to kind of dodge the copyright so you don't have to cut a check to disney along those lines Sting starts out with an arm drag and then does a little bit of posing. And I have to admit, it is wild to see him in this before period. I know I've seen it before, but I really don't get tired of it. So you get a side headlock by Massey, and Sting counters with a back suplex. And letting All Japan know that eventually, when he gets a little bit more experience, he might be able to come over for a brief tour in June of 1989. And that's exactly what happened. It was literally like a week of results that you have. Uh, he's Flash, the Blade Runner, Blade Runner Flash, until May of 86. So not too long before this, pretty much in conjunction with the team with Rock, nay, the ultimate warrior. And we get a mention of Vicksburg, Mississippi, because it's Ken Massey's hometown. 
saying that he picked up a win there. Now, I looked up his results. I didn't see anything. But, again, the UWF is pretty spotty with that sort of stuff. I could find no evidence to back that up. But it's not like it's not like people can't make claims without having any evidence whatsoever. As Sting with a slam, but then he pulls Massey up at a two-count because he's not done yet. He needs experience, people. He's going to be facing Ric Flair on television in about a year and a half. He's going to have to go 45 minutes, so he's going to have to expand the repertoire at some point. Drop kick and a clothesline, and he finishes Massey off, and you're not going to believe this. Hits him with the gorilla press slam, and then runs the ropes and hits a big splash. Like, hmm, I wonder if I've seen anybody else do that before. It's just kind of funny to to see this. Sting and the Ultimate Warrior are just forever linked because they started at the same place. And I don't mean like in the same promotion. Like they are tag team partners. They're muscle guys who are just not good at professional wrestling. And then they work from there. And obviously they had various degrees of success. I think if you swap places and Sting is in WWF and Warrior is in WCW, well, I don't think Warrior gets very far because I don't think he would have been allowed to be the character that he was. And Sting, I think, would have grown to even better heights, because I think they would have been able to hide his flaws a little bit better, and probably wouldn't have had him climbing a cage like that, so he wouldn't have blown out his knee, or at least one would hope. I mean, it would have been a big blue cage in any event, so it's not like, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to climb, I, I guess. It's just interesting to think about the, maybe somebody should write like a white paper on this. Could somebody write like a PhD thesis on like the divergence of Sting and the Ultimate Warrior? I mean, I, I know it's ridiculous because we're talking about professional wrestling here. And it's the Michael Hayes and the Bad Street Band. That's easy to remember. I know a lot of you out there miss the enhancement matches that you would get on Saturday morning wrestling back in the day. But I think what you also should miss is the simplistic names of some of these enhancement guys through the years. Like, one of the all-time greats, of course, is the terrorist at Clash 7, who happened to be Jack Victory, who, by the way, we're going to be seeing a little bit later in one of his many roles that he would have through the years. But, well, you know, when you just throw out a guy there... And, you know, who has, you know, mildly dark skin. And, you know, okay, you're the Libyan now because it's 1986 and that's what's hot. He's taking on Chavo Guerrero Sr., who is not a senior at this point because there's no need to differentiate because there's no Chavo Jr. in the business. As Hayes, as the match gets underway, says that he would not be proud to be from Libya, which he's the heel announcer. And he's even decrying this guy who is, again, nothing more than an enhancement guy who is going to lose every single week. Of course, it's not just Libyan. It's the Socialist People's Libyan Arab Jamaria was the full name of Gaddafi's Libya. Of course, he's been dead since 2011. I know Gaddafi probably would have wanted to hang around and see the Stanley Cup playoffs that year and the Bruins win the Cup, but he didn't live long enough to see the Cubs win the World Series, which, oh well, other than the fact that he's a complete scumbag who, quite frankly, he he bombed a freaking dance club with American servicemen there in West Germany. And eventually, over time, there was American airstrikes in response, but the Germans eventually prosecuted 
the Libyan secret agents or whatever involved in that. And I thought, huh, wow, how about that? Germany prosecuted terrorists. I'm sure Israel would have appreciated if they had done that in 72 instead of just letting them go and then having all these Israeli guys having to chase them all over the world and then leading towards the movie Munich, which I've probably mentioned this before. It's it's like any porn film you've ever seen. It ends with a male orgasm. <laughs> I probably got to stop making reference to that movie because it's not the very last scene in the movie, but it's close enough to the end that it like literally haunts me. It, it is a rather haunting film. You know, it's been 15 years since I've seen. It. I saw it in the theater and haven't really sought it out s- since. As the Libyan kind of fights back, as Michael Hayes on color commentary here. Now, Jim Ross is supposed to be the play-by-play guy, but Hayes is talking for, like, over a minute straight, and it's mostly play-by-play that he's doing. So I don't know exactly what's going on here. So anyway, Chavo, in 1978 in L.A., and I had not... I knew that he had worked the L.A. territory. He had the feud with Roddy Piper, kind of made in the hot rod, as it were. But what I did not know is that he took a role in a film called The One and Only. And I'm surprised that this has escaped my notice for so long. Because it was directed by Carl Reiner. Obviously, rather prominent. His son would go on and have great success as a director. I mean, he did Spinal Tap, for God's sakes. The hell If he'd just done that, that would have been one hell of a career for Rob Reiner. But this movie that Carl Reiner directed... The one and only starred Henry Winkler at pretty much the height of his powers. His 78 is, you know, Happy Days is a top three show on television. And Winkler in the movie ends up becoming a professional wrestler. And I, I can't believe I did not know that. I'm, I'm going to have to seek this out. And he becomes like a gorgeous George type of character. Chavo in the movie played Indian Joe, which I don't know if it's any relation to Samoa Joe. Probably not, but... You know, I guess it's okay if you can pass for Mexican and Indian. It really kind of expands the kind of roles that you might be, you know, able to get. As Wink- Winkler's character kind of becomes friendly with uh, Hervé Villachez, you know, the guy from Fantasy Island. I wonder why I'm talking about Hervé Villachez in a match between the Libyan and Chavo Guerrero Sr. Quite frankly, I've covered a lot of nondescript stuff on this program in 193 episodes. And this might be one of the most nondescript matches I've ever seen. Because the Libyan gets in a lot of offense and Chavo ends up winning with a roll-up. You know, nothing spectacular or anything like that. It's like, look... This was a professional wrestling match, and it indeed happened. And that's pretty much all I can say about it. Is there a week? Uh, 12, no, yeah. How about Memphis 2, then, right? Uh, yeah. Let's see, 12, 19, yeah. Okay. You can... Oh, if, without saying dates, because we don't want to use dates because the dates are shit, we can say that this Friday night in Memphis and a week from Sunday in Dallas, if you want to be that. But everybody knows it's coming up, you know, I mean, you know, on the program. The Reunion Arenas. Yeah, so that's all we need to say. We'll yeah. leave the dates alone. Yeah, one deal I'm using that pitch on Reunion is that there's 40, over 40 participants there. Yeah, biggest card ever. Yeah. Okay. Over 40 participants. Oh, that Jim Ross and his foul mouth. Now, I know he loves his baba barbecue, as Keithy would say, on GFA Live. But 
I, you would think that he would be interested in some sort of sweet fruit to compliment it. The dates are shit. Hey, sorry, Jim. I'm just trying to get you enough potassium to get through the day. Maybe you can go have a banana. Why don't we just go to our next match, which we have Brett Wayne Sawyer and Gary Young just kind of awkwardly walking around the ring because we don't go to commercial. We just continue rolling tape here. As once again, another awkward thing that we get from this show as Jim Ross tosses it to the sheep herders in the locker room for some comments. But we stay right on the ring, so we're not getting these things that have been cut into the program. And now they're making their way out to the ring on the video shot there. As Jack Victory is there as well. Jack Victory, a man of contrasts. A, 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 as I said, he's every jobber. I'll tell you this, it's, it's like feast or famine for Victor. He's around the beautiful Missy Hyatt, and then he's back in the company of the sheep herders. That's about from one end of the spectrum to the other. About yes, as far is. as you can get. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's one thing I would agree with you, Helium Head. I don't think I've ever heard anyone called Helium Head before. It basically just means an airhead. But there is an urban dictionary definition for that term. Of course, this didn't exist back in those days. Helium Head, your typical social media person, a rubber skin blow-up doll that is seeking to make themselves look better to a bunch of other blow-up dolls. All they really have in common is their contempt for anybody who may have it better than they. Actually, that may describe Jim Ross. I mean, I don't need to pick on the guy or anything. <laughs> he doesn't even like dates, for God's sakes. But uh, Sheep Herders and the Fantastics are in a kind of a blood feud at this point with a lot of crazy matches. I know they faced off the Crockett Cup. In 86, which would have been back in April. Now, Brett Wayne Sawyer, this is a guy, we don't talk about him much. I know that's not much of a Conrad, but it's not like I've listened to his podcasts at any time recently. Because like, I can hear commercials pretty much anywhere else. He was trained by the unlikely duo. Well, one of them is Buzz Sawyer, his older brother. But also, Ricky Steamboat, it's that, like... I can't even imagine Ricky Steamboat and Buzz Sawyer working together on anything because Steamboat's a very calm and collected dude by all, all, you know, accounts. And Buzz Sawyer is a completely insane person who had a wrestling school and basically didn't teach anybody anything, just took the money and whatever. Now, of course, Buzz died in 1992. Brett is still around to this day. He was arrested in May of 2011. And I hate it when. I research these things on wrestlers like, okay, this guy got arrested then. And then I always wonder, well, then then what happened? Okay, so the guy made a mistake once. Yeah, he got busted on like three different things or whatever. I don't really care to go into all of that right now. But what bothers me, and I this came up with a D Duke the Dumpster Drossy a while ago where it was like, oh, yeah, he got busted having, you know, drugs or whatever. And then there's never anything after for like oh did he have to plea out was he found guilty was he found not guilty it's like okay so a person gets arrested and that's basically just smears them forever so i don't know just something to kind of keep in mind when you when you see something like that is luke is on defense early and then he eventually just he just charges into a knee as Hayes is just doing a bunch of play-by-play -play here i'm like what the hell is going on here like what is jim ross doing and then I thought to myself, he he must be in the bathroom taking a crap because he clearly has not had enough potassium. Gary Young tags in, and this is not the Gary Young who is a PGA Tour rules official. 
So if you if you Google Gary Young, that's like the first guy you get now. But this Gary Young probably better known for his work in world class championship wrestling, both in the early '80s and then in the later years of world class in the late '80s. As Butch finally gets the tag, as Hayes just keeps doing the play by play, which is so weird to hear. Now Gary Young got a victory last week. Boom! That's illegal. That's illegal. Side headlock and hip lock takeover. Thing there though, they had crazy loot going. You don't stop it now. There's a tag to Butch. And they've got him tied up on their side of the field. They got him down there over on their side. And in their corner, man, that's like having somebody driving at your 10 yard line. Good knee to the gut. As I've always said, if you take the wind out of the man, he can't breathe. All he can do is panic while he gets beat up. There's Jack Victory. Well, we've got this tag team situation. We have more tag team action coming your way. Does it bother you? Do you know who, you know, Cowboy Bill Watts? Jeez, Jim, welcome back. Where were you that entire time? What were you doing? Shit. Well, that is most unfortunate. But it does remind me of one of the funniest things from my childhood, which was my, my older sis, my oldest sister had a boyfriend at the time and he called the house when my sister was legitimately in the bathroom, I don't, I don't know what the hell she was doing. But my other sister, who's you know like two years older than me, picked up the phone and said, not just in a normal tone of voice, but in like this weird Texas, West Virginia hillbilly sort of, I don't know hillbilly, but like she can't come to the phone right now. She's taking a shit. And I, I thought it was the funniest thing that I ever heard in my life. But then when my oldest sister found out, she stormed out of the house crying, which was also hilarious as well. So certainly, I don't know. It, it's it's a sheep herders match for God's sakes. But they they're in, they finally take command. We're getting nothing dynamic. There's it's not a weapons match here. Come on, it's just a regular. And they're not facing off against the Fantastics. That's not how things work. They do effectively cut the ring off. Now, I'm not saying that they're Arn and Tully or the Midnight Express here, but they do grasp tag team concepts and do things particularly well. As Michael Hayes leaves the commentary booth to get ready for his match a little bit later on, as Young kind of ducks a clothesline from Luke Williams and then kind of crawls between his legs to make the tag to Brett Sawyer, who is kind of house of fire coming in, and it's really strange the way this match is playing out. Sawyer seems to be kind of serving in that Paul Roma chair of the mid-80s WWF where, yeah, he's an enhancement guy, but he gets a lot of respect and is able to get in offense on the Sheep Herders. He drop kicks both of them at the same time, and then I don't know, it's so funny seeing the Sheep Herders bumping around considering, you know, they're going to be in WWF less than, you know, two and a half years. And, I mean, yeah, I guess they would bump a little bit, but, you know, not quite like this. Sawyer misses on a drop kick, and the Sheep Herders take advantage. They double team, and the Gut Buster, which, of course, you'd see them use as the Bushwhackers, allows them to pick up the win. So as they go into commercial now, we get footage in the ring of... Gary Young consoling his tag team partner after he ate the pin. And we now welcome in new color man, Frank Dusick. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to introduce an eight-year veteran. Okay, well, we're waiting on Colonel Frank here. Captain Frank. 
I was a naval lieutenant, which was the equivalent to an army captain. I'm sorry. That's why Jerry didn't want to. Naval officer, he wanted to. We need a two shot here because Frank's on the scene. There he is. Oh, hello. Frank, now we're going to look up the camera here, baby. We're going to come on and we're going to intro a piece about the, the, the deal. I'll, I'll welcome you here. We're going to, you know, Sabadai. Then I want you to hit something up when we come out. Well, they do play a recap of Bill Watts, Free Birds, Dr. Death situation where Dr. Death gets injured in order to allow him to meet his Japan commitments because that is how Mid-South UWF worked is they let guys go over to Japan and they would always get conveniently injured around that time. Like, even like... The dumbest fan could be like, hmm, Ted DiBiase always seems to get injured in early early November. I, I wonder why it is. <laughs> Must be something. But we actually don't see that package. Instead, we, we again, just get more behind the scenes. The deal, the, the, the families made comments about Dad getting back and kicking ass. Yeah. And, there's, and so a generic deal. The cowboy means business. The family knows what the consequences are. That kind of thing. Okay. And it's war. So I'll let you do that. All right. If you don't mind. No, I'd be glad to. All right. What more can you say, Frank? I think it's clear. You know, the family's accepted the fact that the cowboy's back in, and he's back in here to stay. He means business. They've awakened the sleeping tiger. The family's behind him. That just is the green light to the cowboy to do what he needs to do to get the job done. It's war, ladies and gentlemen, and now let's go to the ring in our next great match. It's kind of funny how Ross asked Dusick to say, it is now a war, but Dusick never gets around to actually saying it, so JR makes sure to cram it in before we go to our next match. Straight out of 1993, WWF, so long as they had babyface matches, is Rick Steiner taking on Coco Beware, who makes his way down to... The bird by Morris Day in the time. A true man of the people, Coco. Hugging everybody in the front row. Very Fantastics-like. Although, you know, he's dancing with the little kids. I mean, look, there's been a lot of talk about Hall of Fames of late with the Wrestling Observer, excuse me, Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, which I honestly could not give less of a rat's ass about that. Because it's like, all right, Chris Benoit is in your Hall of Fame and you elected him as an active wrestler. And then when he murdered his wife and son, you had an election to kick him out. And then you still didn't even kick him out then. And I can't help but get the feeling that as long as you have a Japanese name, you could pretty much get into like the Meltzer Hall of Fame like so easily. But I want to talk about the WWE Hall of Fame, which is its own different thing. And how everybody's like, Coco Beware's in the Hall of Fame. And I got to tell you, anybody who says, oh, this guy doesn't belong, I'm sorry. I, The whole Hall of Fame that they have there, yeah, it's all Vince McMahon's whims. But it's not just for his work as Coco Beware, World Wrestling Federation, 1986 to 1993. It covers more than that. That's why, like, Abdullah the Butcher, despite never working a match in the WWF, is in that Hall of Fame. Now, I know superstar Billy Graham took issue with that. But you go back to Memphis, you go to this Mid-South, Coco Beware is one of the best tag team wrestlers of all time. I mean, maybe I'm not going to say he's top five, but he is certainly up there. No less of an authority. Jim Cornette says that him and Bobby Eaton are the best team that Bobby Eaton was involved with. That's Jim Cornette saying that. So, I don't know. It, it just upsets me. Like, oh, Coco doesn't belong because, oh, what? Because he was an opening match guy who 
got the crowd going at house shows for years and years and years with his act. He was really, really good at what his role was. And I don't think people appreciate that there are certain things that you have to do in professional rent. Like, not everybody is going to be main eventing. You need guys in certain slots. It's like, it's like in baseball where I didn't appreciate defense at first base until probably about like 10 or 15 years ago. I don't know why that was. I just thought you could slap any fat guy out there and have him catch the ball. But, you know, there's, there's a certain value to guys who can dig balls out of the dirt, make plays, what have you. Baseball, baseball, baseball. Look, I know that there are certain people who like to talk about rigged elections lately, but can we talk about the fact that Kenny Omega gets into Meltzer's Hall of Fame? Oh, what a freaking shock that is. He got into Meltzer's Hall of Fame where Meltzer chooses who gets a vote. Like, gee, I wonder how that worked out. It's not even real. It's not even like you can go to, like, Dave Meltzer's, like, walk-in closet and you're going to have some sort of plaque up there and it's like, oh, gee, I wonder if Ric Flair... Uh, which, which belt he's wearing. Like, like they have the hats in the baseball hall of fame. I don't know why this bothers me so much. It's probably because they, they have a murderer in there and he wouldn't even kick the murderer out of the hall of fame because he was really good in the top of the super J that one time. Like, oh my God. But luckily as, as a nice little palate cleanser here, Jim Ross on very, very young Rick Steiner, only like two years into the business, not even smart, not even wearing like the singlet. Not even wearing knee pads with his trunks. We've got a great matchup here. We've got a young man, Rick Steiner. What a powerfully built individual. As strong an upper body as any man in the sport today. And that hip toss right there, if you'll notice, Jim Ross, was done with less leverage and more strength. Most people set the hip in deeper. They use the leverage of the man's upper body to toss him over. He just used that massive shoulder and tricep strength and lifted him up and over. A lot of different color commentators in the shows that have covered over the last three and a half years, but I, I rather like Frank Dusick in this role. He he is not bad at this. I, I would have loved to have heard more from him as we get a slam from Rick Steiner and a bit of a reset. Again, him not wearing knee pads here is just really throwing me off. It's like he's he's time traveled in from 1976 or something as they do a crisscross spot and you know coco is going like 150 miles an hour through it and he hit it when they meet in the center of the ring i don't know how they're doing it at this speed especially coco hits the ted dibiase power slam on a crisscross mind you uh, this, this gets a nine out of ten degree of difficulty on the dibiase sawyer scale i mean steiner he goes outside to take a powder wonder what the hell just happened there but outstanding by Coco. And luckily, Jim Ross, because of course, you're going to mention University of Michigan with Rick Steiner. It's part of the package, even though he's not wearing the Michigan singlet, like I said. But JR, in a, he didn't play college football. He was an amateur wrestler, but he manages to cram in stuff about football anyway. It's all right there, Jim Ross. I don't think that Steiner exhibited or saw any activity like he just witnessed and felt in the Big Ten tournament when he was wrestling for the blue and gold of old Michigan U, and I certainly don't mean any disrespect to that tremendous institution. What a football program Bo Schembechler's assembled there, a powerhouse year in and year out. Bo Schembechler was the football coach at the University of Michigan. He was also the athletic director as well, so you know, he might have had a hand in wrestling or whatever. I, I doubt it. I mean, he was probably more focused on football. In 86, so the season coming up, that Michigan team was pretty good. I thought that that might have been one of the years where Jim Harbaugh was the quarterback, but it was after him, apparently. They finished 11-2 and 
on the season. They won the Big Ten. They beat Michigan State. They beat Ohio State. Bad loss to Minnesota at home. And they lost the Rose Bowl to Arizona State, which it's really weird that, like, I don't remember Arizona State. They they rarely would win the Pac-10. And the only big name I saw on that team who played in the NFL at least made an impact is Eric Allen, the former cornerback for the Philadelphia Eagles. So I don't know. I guess now I'm turning into Jim Ross with the football talk as we get a leapfrog times two by Steiner showing off the agility. And then we get another crisscross and Coco hits one of the hardest cross bodies I've ever seen in my life. It was like two cars colliding head on at like 40 miles an hour. It was pretty crazy. And that gets a two count Steiner get with a cheap, right in the corner and a power slam gets a two count coco fires up with a few punches to the stomach and this leads into uh, this is absolutely incredible and after the nondescript chavo versus the libyan earlier you know i kind of you know get a little bit sleepy and wonder why the hell am i doing this why am i watching these matches it's to get to these gems like rick steiner versus coco ware in 1986 coco He's running the ropes, or actually Steiner is running the ropes. Coco does a leapfrog. As Steiner would do, he caught Coco in a power slam. Not not unlike, you know, the DiBiase Sawyer style power slam. And he does it, but Coco is somehow able to roll through the power slam and cradles Steiner for the one, two, three. This is absolutely incredible. I, I gotta clip this or something and post it to Twitter because th- this is great stuff. And Steiner though caught him oh. with a power slam. But Coco's all the way through. What a maneuver. Oklahoma hay right out of the power slam. One, two, three, Jim Ross. You haven't seen that in years. Unbelievable. The Birdman, Coco Ware, flying home to Memphis Friday night and we'll be back with the Freebirds via premiere video when we return from this timeout. I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm not easily impressed. After all, I have said recently that I can't get enough of Warlord and British Bulldogs promos on each other. I mean, it just entertains me. It's a guilty pleasure. What can I say about that? Coco beware. I mean, this this guy pulling off that finish is... I, I wrote wow in my notebook in rather large letters that actually bled over two lines. So you you know I meant business. And then I just wrote, Coco is greater than Omega. It was like, oh, Kenny Omega is this crossover star. Hey, you know what, Meltzer? No, he isn't. No, he's not. Nobody knows who, nobody knows who Kenny Omega is, okay? I'll go on my Zoom call on Friday night with four of my friends, a couple of which are very casual wrestling fans may follow it through like you know the mainstream coverage they don't they don't know who kenny omega is they they just don't but coco beware yes i know he has the benefit of wrestling a long time ago so he has a longer history but people know who coco beware is they remember him fondly Nobody, nobody knows who Kenny Omega is. It's time, time to just face fact. Ooh, he had a great match with Okada. Like, oh yeah, and Coco carried a bird to the ring. And what do you think more people are going to remember? Thanks very much for staying with us, everybody. And now we're going to premiere a new video. It's, uh, it's got a lot of very talented people involved in it. I'm talking about Ricky Medlock, Ricky Phillips, and Jimmy Papa, the drummer of the Bad Street Band. This is the will be the first single off the new album that the Freebirds are releasing uh, forthcoming in just a few weeks. That album called Rebel Rock. 
But the uh, song that we're going to hear in this premiere video is The Boys Are Back in Town. Well, no, we don't get that video because we have this special magical UWF program where we get to see Jim Ross talking to the truck. Actually, we get to see him more listening to the truck. There's not much to go on here. You could tell he wanted to sing The Bird, the the Coco Beware theme song, but he, he didn't really get into it other than maybe a word or two. I don't know. I'm willing, I'm willing to trade, trade out for one weird show like this. I mean, if this was like a WWF show and they cut out the like Survivor Series team promos, yeah, I'd be pretty pissed off if we did that. So yeah, I don't, I don't remember like the, the Freebirds like full catalog or whatever. It's like, I thought they just went from Bad Street straight to I'm a Freebird and what's your excuse? That whole disaster from that Clash of the Champions in January of 92 when Jimmy Garvin was there. Hey, we have proper free birds with Buddy Roberts and Terry Gordy and, of course, Michael Hayes. It's JR. We, we just get him going through his notes. And by, by the way, the song, uh, uh, Boys Are Back in Town, yeah, it's okay, the song. The video is, is very just sort of generic. Frankly, I prefer the Phil Linet and Thin Lizzy version. But, you know, you know I, I guess potato, tomato, potato, you know, all that sort of stuff. JR just going through his notes. And because uh, I'm a weirdo, I'm just sitting here hoping he's just going to blurt out the word fist f- any second. Joel, will you make yourself a note to uh, if you if it's not too cluttered to put that phone number when we mentioned it on the screen? OK, thanks. Frankly, I prefer this. It's Jim Ross giving these meaningless to us because we don't actually see what it is with the way this video plays out. Notes to I'm assuming he's talking to Joel Watts doing the producing or directing or whatever it is on this to put a phone number on the screen. I'd rather have that than to listen to Vince McMahon yelling through the headset at Michael Cole or, or, or what have you. Like, this is far more interesting to me because Bill Watts presents UWF Mid-South as a sport. After all, it was called Mid-South Sports. So to, you know, hear this sort of presented as a television show more than, I, I guess you could say it was like a sport. I mean, he's talking to the truck like the way a play-by-play man would, like Al Michaels would on Sunday Night Football or whatever. It's just, I've, I haven't watched a wrestling show outside of WWE where I've heard something like this. And to have it be Mid-South, uh, to me, is interesting, especially with Jim Ross, a guy who is literally around forever. Born in the USA hits now. And Bill Wallace and Terry Taylor make their way down. What what a duo this is. Two definite advocates for civil rights in the black community. Terry Taylor, a guy who's part of, you know, the racial discrimination lawsuits in World Championship Wrestling, teaming with the guy who was fired from World Championship Wrestling for some racial remarks. I mean, you think about all the racial discrimination suits that WCW faced, and Bill Watts was fired well, I'm sure that there were other reasons, but in part, like, Bill Watts, too racist even for WCW. Let's think about that on his rap sheet. Although he does have a baseball bat here, which I don't know if it's a wood bat or a metal bat. It's, uh, I don't know what the length or the, or the weight, if he wants to get, you know, be- better bat speed on it. Of course, the technology back in those days is not, uh, not for, for bats would not be what it is later. And they're supposed to be facing the Freebirds. It looks to be, Michael Hayes, and Terry Bam Bam Gordy, who, oh, by the way, is the UWF World Heavyweight Champion at this point. 
And they don't want to make their way to the ring because Watts has a baseball bat. And I, I can't say that I really blame them. So Hayes just kind of goes back to commentary and uh, kind of lists his grievance. Now, now he's going up here. What do you want? I'm going to tell you right now. I told you before, this guy's a maniac. He's ridiculous. He didn't retire. They forced him out of wrestling. We ain't wrestling. This is a universal heavyweight champion. I'm Michael P.S. Hayes. We are not wrestling this idiot as long as he's got that ball bat. You can forget it. I'm sure the referee will take that ball bat away from him, Michael. Don't no, I ain't going there. Don't worry no. about it. Hey, what's the sport of wrestling coming to, man? I don't know. You guys, I'll tell you, you don't have any business up here. You know that. Hey! Get the ball back. Sting must be watching through the curtain and being like, you know, if I'm still wrestling when I'm an old man, I'm going to carry a black baseball bat with me. That, that's a vow that I'm going to keep if, if I'm still around 10, 12, 15 years from now. As Bill Watts just kind of hanging out in the ring, he's sort of taunting them, channeling his inner Rod Roddy. Come on down. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to be perfectly honest. In tracking down that clip, I went down a 10 to 12 minute rabbit hole of just Rod Roddy stuff for The Price is Right. Because all of it is hilarious. The guy the guy had just a magical look. And he had incredible jackets. It, it, it would put Don Cherry to shame, quite frankly. Of course, I realize that most of you in the audience don't know who Don Cherry is. And he's now a relic of the past. If, if you're from Canada, though, he's like one of the biggest things in your life over the last 40 years. So we got a standoff here with the Freebirds. And basically, Bill Watts, Terry Taylor is just sort of the window dressing in the background. I'll tell you what. What? Everybody in here, the television audience can see you've got no guts. I don't give a damn where it happens, so you wait there and I'll come. So now Watts squawks out to the commentary position with his bat. And when he gets close, the free birds are able to sneak by him, and they make their way down to the ring. In the middle of all this, Jim Ross tosses his headset into the air and just kind of beats it and gets the hell out of there. And the free birds eventually make their way back to the ring. But now they have a third guy there. Buddy Roberts just kind of materialized out of nowhere. I have no idea how that happened. I don't know if somebody in the bathroom at the Tulsa Convention Center said... Buddy Jack Roberts, Buddy Jack Roberts, Buddy Jack Roberts into a mirror, and then all of a sudden he appears. Some sort of Beetlejuice character? I I don't know. But of course, now it's with three on two, so a bunch of the baby faces end up down at ringside. So it's Hacksaw Jim Duggan who's going to end up joining forces with Terry Taylor and Bill Watts. So now we officially get a six-man match. And as I note here, we don't get any play-by-play at first because Jim Ross tossed his headset and beat it. But as it turns out, watching all this all the way through, this is like a house show match shot like a TV match in that there's no commentary to it. But I don't, it's unclear to me how much of this actually, I'm going to assume the whole thing actually aired on Mid-South UWF TV because they, they, they did put big stuff like this on television. As Gordy, Starts out, he's getting pummeled by Duggan early on. The man who, this was the finals of the UWF World Title Tournament back in May. is Duggan, who was defeated by Gordy, tagged to Terry Taylor. And they continue to assault them. And he's got one for Michael Hayes and one for Buddy Roberts on the apron, who are both very reluctant to tag in. But Buddy, 
eventually does take the tag. He comes into the ring. Duggan hits him with what I thought was going to be the spinning body slam, but because Duggan pre-WWF always does a little bit extra and sometimes surprises me, he does the backbreaker instead, drops him on his knee. Taylor gets back in there, but he gets caught putting his head down, a cardinal mistake for a ring veteran. And Gordy follows that up with a pretty neat-looking snap vertical suplex. And the crowd is very, very hot for this. And I don't know if it's that they don't have to worry about, you know, the volume of the crowd because you got no commentary, so you might as well just let it be as loud as it's possibly going to be. As Hayes and Gordy hit a double elbow, clothesline gets two on Taylor. As a chin lock is put on, they get a go, cher- go Terry Go chant. And, yeah, I, I cannot possibly overstate how into it the crowd is for UWF, middle of 1986 here. As Duggan takes it into his own hands, tries to stop things, but he is intercepted by the referee Carl Fergie, who, if I remember correctly, is a cousin of Jerry Lawler, which I know is one of those things where it feels like Lawler has about 85 cousins in wrestling, but, you know, that's just the way it goes. Yeah, at this point, in watching this, I I made the note, like, yeah, so Ross never returns to commentary. That's an interesting decision. I don't know what the deal with that is. As we get an elbow off the second rope by Buddy Roberts that misses, and this allows Taylor to make the hot tag to Cowboy Bill Watts, but eventually he gets caught. Gordy has the advantage on Bill, and I'm glad that that happened because – I don't know how wise it would be. I don't care how over Bill Watts is in his own territory. At the age that he's at here, and not to give him the John Tenta treatment, because it's not like Bill Watts is, oh, look at how young he is. He is so shockingly young compared to what you think he is. Like At this point in 1986, Bill Watts is no longer a young man, and it, it shows. He is, at this time, 47 years old. Which I know isn't that, it's not like he's totally ancient or anything, but people age differently back then and he just looks noticeably older than Gordy and Hayes, two guys who are in their 20s. And you know, he's their world champion, Gordy, so he should be the dominant guy in the match. It's Duggan, he, he, he's drawn in again and the referee has to force him out. You get a fist off the second rope, that gets a two count for Gordy. As Buddy, when he gets in there, there's sort of a miscommunication. He knocks Hayes off the apron, and it appears like Watts makes the hot tag to Jim Duggan, but the referee missed it for whatever reason, and now we get all six men in the ring, which I have to describe because this would be a perfect spot for Jim Ross to be there. It's like, it's busting loose here in Tulsa, but no, no, he's not there. He left. He ran off screaming, whatever, and the match Appears to get thrown out at that point. Uh, Carl Fergie calls for the bell, and I'm assuming it is a double disqualification. As Watts moves, and Gordy ends up hitting Hayes, so another heel miscommunication as the faces stand tall in the ring. And I'd assume that this is the end of the taping, or end of the show for the television taping here in Tulsa. Apparently not a double disqualification, as... Watts, Taylor, and Duggan are announced as the winners by the ring announcer. I, I don't understand because it's not like Freebirds got disqualified for anything. And I gotta say though, as Born in the USA plays again, never has there been a song that is so misunderstood 
Like, yeah, you got songs where you get misheard lyrics like, Excuse me while I kiss this guy by Jimi Hendrix. There's a bathroom on the right by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Like, you know, that, that's humorous, you know, haha stuff where you mishear the lyrics. Like, Born in the USA, like, has been misappropriated for such weird things. And all I know is that Bill Watts, if anybody ever told him what that song is really about, I think he would be uh, a little bit pissed off. Like, what are you saying that there are troubles in America that we're not treating our veterans right? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, honestly, he's probably sitting somewhere in Bixby, Oklahoma right now, not to turn to Jim Ross. 81 years old, watching, well, I don't know what cable channel is, but I think I can nail it down to one of two cable channels that he's watching right now. I think he might have turned off one cable channel in favor of another one. I don't know if that particular network, I gotta say what it is, gets carriage in Bixby. Probably not. Maybe he has a satellite. Who knows? <laughs> oh, God, Bill Watts. I mean, yeah, he definitely, like, Lord Alfred Hayes doesn't know what Double Dragon is, and when he's reading the promotional consideration off the sheet, it's just words. Bill Watts is just hearing a peppy song that's with the chorus saying, born in the USA, and is not paying attention to the rest of it. But this was exciting stuff. The crowd was into it. I don't ask for much in my wrestling at this point. I've been generally, you know, kind of in a malaise when it comes to watching this in terms of getting through it. But, yeah, this this match was good, but still, the MVP of the show was Coco Ware versus Rick Steiner. Oh, I live to find stuff like that because tape rolls out here. We don't get any outro. There's no announcer. And that's it for UWF Television for July the 19th, 1986. I know on the Our Vantage Point podcast, Stromeron and Michael Quinn celebrated their 200th episode last week, but it was so big that they had to spread it out over two parts in the 200th episode part two, which I guess uh, episode 200.5, I guess. 200A and 200B, something like that. I've only done one two-parter, and it was that Royal Rumble 92 thing, which I broke up because it was like I was going to Florida to the timeshare. I guess that was a year ago this week, and it was sad that I wasn't able to go there. But do check out the Our Vantage Point podcast with those guys. And, of course, you know, they're must-follow on Twitter at OVP Podcast. I do a lot of quote tweets of their stuff, probably because – the videos that they post kind of jog my, I, I, I don't know. Like, like I can provide quick commentary, like a little blurb, a quote tweet, something to, something to that effect. But they are definitely one of the best follows on Twitter. Uh, on the sportscast is my good pal, Steve Bennett, co-host of the Adams Vision podcast with me. He's got Kenny Albert, who, if there is a God, of course, Kenny Albert does the NFL on Fox alongside former Jets linebacker, Jonathan Vilma. He should be the number one lead voice for hockey for the NHL on NBC for whenever the hell the season's going to start. I mean, it's November 17th, and they haven't even announced when a season might be, probably because we don't know what is going to happen with the virus at, at this point. So I don't know, but it's making me freaking nervous because... Well, number one, NBC hasn't named the lead guy yet, and it should be Kenny Albert, 
because he is so freaking good and he does so many sports so well. The other thing is, I would like them to announce what the plan is so that we can get this Zidane Chara thing settled once and for all here. I mean, please. I do not want Zidane Chara signing with another team, and I'm pretty sure that he won't. And, of course, now that I've said that, he'll probably sign with another team in the short window between when I'm recording this and when it's released. So do check that out. Kenny Albert on the Sportscasters with my good pal Steve Bennett. Keep thinking, looking at the timestamp on here as I'm recording this, that the show is a little short, but don't forget, like, a lot of the time it was just Jim Ross staring at his notes. I mean, how am I going to talk about that? It was, it was something nice and different. But, this video has been on YouTube for a surprisingly long time, over three years, we got enough YouTube comments to do another edition of YouTube Comment Theater. Now, as always, these are actual YouTube comments. Most of them left the couple of years ago. I, I hope that people still hold the same opinions of this. Jerome Williams says, great look behind the scenes. Yeah, this is a very unique video. I'm not saying I would do this all the time because I kind of missed having promos on here to talk about. I mean, yeah, it's nice to goof on Jim Ross uh, swearing and all that sort of stuff. Patrick Veljanovic says, I was 13 when I saw this episode on TV. The hour was over and I never saw the outcome of this after Watts stormed the platform. 33 years later, I now know what happened. Thanks for posting. Hmm. Okay, so I don't know what aired here or if it's just like the, the tape or whatever. I mean, maybe I could seek that out somewhere else, but a lot of the individual matches are on YouTube. It's that I don't think I've seen this show, but I don't think I would have done this if it wasn't for all this weird footage of Jim Ross going through his notes, talking to the truck, him and Hayes, the countdown, all that. Kelson Lopez says, Every legend has a beginning. UWF is where Sting really learned how to perform. He still has his Blade Runners gear here. This was the tag team he had with the Ultimate Warrior. A few weeks before this, Warrior left the UWF after a pay dispute with promoter Bill Watts. Yeah, I would like to own some of the transcripts of the conversations between Jim Helwig and Bill Watts. I'd be very fascinated by the dynamics of that relationship. Because they certainly have reasons to like each other, but also they have probably more reasons to dislike each other. Kurt Ferris says, Jim Ross off-camera talking to Michael Hayes. Quote, we don't want to use the word dates because the dates are shit. LOL. Yes, that was definitely a highlight of this particular show. Dark Rose says they should have never made Taylor a, quote, bad guy. Actually, Taylor is a heel in UWF. Let's tell he had that car accident. Was pretty damn good at it. I mean, you know, you think of Taylor as a heel a lot of times like, oh, he's the tailor-made man in WCW. Like, his, his earlier stuff, like, he's not completely terrible. Yeah, he's probably racist and everything, and he's terrible for that. But, you know, I guess that should make him a natural heel, huh? Doc the Metal Freak? I think I've seen Doc the Metal Freak on here before. They mentioned having a show in Okmulgee? That's my wife's hometown. I don't even know what state that is. But then again, I haven't made too many visits to that part of the country. Oklahoma, I have been through, like, the only time I have ever been to Oklahoma was when I was moving to Nevada in 03, and it was the time, like, all I was in there for was the time it took me to get from the Arkansas end all the way out to the Texas Panhandle. And that was pretty much it. I think I stopped at a Wendy's, and that was all that I did. 
Benjamin Sisley says, the Libyan, who's that? You get a reply, Joe Wilson, nobody, because I don't believe he ever won a match. Well, I, I highly doubt that somebody named the Libyan was going over in Bill Watts' promotion. And Gaming History Source says, Vince McMahon ruined Terry Taylor's career because of his massive ego. Just couldn't take Terry seriously after that Red Rooster garbage. And Bigger Yellow replies, Right. So hard to believe Terry ever went after Flair for the belt. All I can think is Red Rooster pursuing the Nature Boy in my mind instantly thinks of a squash. Well, I don't know. Terry Taylor alienated a lot of people, but he's also made a lot of friends, which is how he ended up getting jobs over the years. So, in any event, Terry Taylor is a person of extreme contrast who I don't particularly care for that much except for very specific periods in his career. And that'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. And once again, I'm taking a peek at my upcoming episodes for podcasts, some of which has been on there for like the entirety that I've been doing this show. And let me just shout out some of the episodes that I have fairly high on that list that I'll probably be doing sooner rather than later. WCW Worldwide, August 8th, 1992, which is one where at least part of the match where Ron Simmons defeats Big Van Vader for the WCW World Heavyweight title. Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, July 9th, 1983. I don't know, it got a picture of Ric Flair and Roddy Piper doing an interview with Bob Cottle in front of the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling thing, which they took for AEW, where Cody Rhodes is doing a promo. I saw it on Twitter. That that was pretty neat, having the similar background. AWA Championship Wrestling, 1988. I don't have the exact date. I think it's sometime in late May, because it has the match where Jerry Lawler wins the AWA World Heavyweight title from Kurt Henning. NWA Pro, April 23rd, 1988. Probably won't return to 88 NWA uh, all that soon. Monday Night Raw, July 11th, 1994. Which be Bret Hart versus the 1-2-3 Kid. And then a number of superstars, Championship Wrestling, Little Memphis thrown in there. May have to go back to Memphis soon. Slammy Awards. Although that video kind of bugs me because I'm still not 100% on whether it's the complete Slammy Awards, which I'm not, I, if I'm doing the 87 Slammies, and I don't know why my accent just came out like that, I try to make it so that I don't sound like Michael Rappaport, you know, so I have brain damage or whatever. Why does anybody like that guy? I mean, I don't mean to have this be like my final thought, but why does anybody like Michael Rappaport? Like, what exactly is his appeal? I, I don't understand that at all. So yeah, I'll probably be doing one of those episodes. So, or I could just pull something out of my butt again, which I have been known to do in the past. So I'm just continuing to scroll through here. Central states. I, I did a Kansas City show once. I, I, I think that that's pretty much it. All that I'm going to do. LOD versus the Nasty Boys on the Arsenio Hall show. Well, that's getting saved for when I do wrestlers on Arsenio the next time. So, episode 193 is in the books, and be a dear, and give a five-star review, if you can, on Apple Podcasts, which is apparently the only place where you can leave reviews for podcasts. If you haven't already, if you have, I love you dearly for doing that, because it provided what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this particular podcast. And for, for GFA Live on the weekend as well, give that a plug. I don't know why I slammed my notebook here. I mean, it's brand new. It can it can take a beating at this point. It's got like a full stamina bar, I guess you call it. 
This weekend, Keithy and I will be doing Best of the World Wrestling Federation, volume number nine. And there's a lot of good stuff on that. We'll be doing volume nine, followed by 11, 12, and then wrapping up our Best of the World Wrestling Federation series with volume number 15. So do stay tuned for that. Again, I thank you so much for listening and tune in next time for another exciting episode of Greg's from Allentown. Shit, 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 shit.